This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. We've got a lot going on this week as the legislature enters what could be its final two weeks. Lawmakers came back to the Capitol on Tuesday after a lobbyist tested positive for COVID and a contact tra- tracer found a dozen close contacts, which shut down floor sessions Friday and Monday. In the Senate on Tuesday, we saw a pretty controversial bill go down, a bill that would have banned gender-affirming care for transgender minors. Seaborn, you caught that action. Uh, here's a bit of Senate Minority Leader Jill Cohenauer on the floor explaining why the move Senator Bryce Bennett, a Missoula Democrat, used was proper procedure. Mr. Chairman, that bill is still in the possession of the Committee of the Whole, and we can move to indefinitely postpone it in in motions, Mr. Chair. So, Seaborn, can you explain what maneuver Democrats used to kill House Bill 427 and what the bill would have done? It was pretty interesting uh, to watch what happened yesterday. The uh, um, Senate Republicans had moved to... um, postpone hearing that bill, Bill 427, on the Senate floor for another day. And when this happens, typically, um, I think leadership is looking to uh, make sure they have the votes to either pass or or kill the bill. Um, I think this one has been kind of hard for Republicans to get entirely through the process. And so um, perhaps what we saw was an attempt to try by Republicans to try to whip some more votes or at least try to get a better understanding of where they stood. So later on down the line in that schedule, Senator Bryce Bennett uh, got up and made a motion to indefinitely postpone that bill, which um, effectively kills it for now. I think we can see it later on, but uh, it did cause a little bit of confusion. Senator Ellsworth, who was leading the Senate for the day, um, Heard as we heard from Jill Konauer just now that uh, because it's still in the it was still in the Senate's possession, they still were able to vo- make a motion on it. And so um, I think the idea was that Democrats had at the time figured they had enough Republicans on their side to kill that uh, bill, and so um, thought they'd take a chance at it. Um, while I think most people weren't really prepared for it. So remind everybody what exactly the bill would have done. So this was pretty much Republicans' second attempt at trying to limit medical care for transgender youth. Uh, The first iteration of that bill, House Bill 113, uh, would eliminate all uh, gender-affirming care for trans youth. Um, That one went down in the House, uh, while HB 112, that's uh, the uh, bill that bans trans women from participating in women's sports. Uh, that one had passed out of the house, but Republicans had kind of shown some hesitation at limiting, um, any sort of health care for, for youth. And so, um, this bill 427, uh, came out with a different sponsor or representative Jennifer Carlson from, uh, Manhattan. And this bill was a little more specific to the surgeries that, um, it said physicians couldn't uh, conduct on on 
youth or gender affirming uh, care that um, youth sought out to, to try to treat gender dysphoria. And so um, this bill uh, had made it through. This one was palatable to those House Republicans who had kind of balked at the first one, um, made it out of the Senate committee. And then obviously, as we saw yesterday, um, some Republicans still had um, I think issues with this one after hearing from from Democrats and from doctors um, all across the state. Uh, so it seems clear from Rep. Fuller's uh, trying this bill twice uh, that it was important to him. Seaborn, you caught up with Fuller after the vote Tuesday. Can you tell us what he said? Yeah, so I caught up with Representative Fuller in the hallway after the vote, and frankly, he seemed pretty upset that it went down. Um, you know, he said that allowing this bill to die meant uh, physicians could perform uh, sexual mutilation of children and, uh, you know, doom these children to a lifelong uh, medical uh, issues. And these are, these, these are sort of the things that he's been saying uh, through the legislature in support of these bills. Uh, he also was pretty upset with the eight Republicans in the Senate who broke with Democrats to kill HB 427. Um, you know, he said in, that they had engaged in abject cowardice and, uh, you know, despite the fact that um, HB 112 is kind of still out there. And he said, that, you know, using language like that might uh, kind of end up killing HB, his other bill, HB 112 as well. But uh, he said that would actually make a, a bigger act of cowardice to, to do that. Hmm. Now, Senator Bennett has been a big opponent of these bills targeting transgender Montanans, right? Right. Here's uh, what he had to say uh, back when Senate Judiciary advanced the bill in March. What we're doing with this bill is saying that government is going to tell parents what medical procedures they can and cannot have for their kids. If that's not a vast government overreach into the rights of individual parents, to have autonomy over their children, I cannot imagine what is. Seaborn, what did Bennett have to say Tuesday after the bill was defeated? So Senator Bennett told me that, uh, you know, they had been working on Republicans for months uh, to try to stop this bill. Um, essentially, the, uh, the, the amount of time that it took for the, the first bill to die and, and then the second bill to kind of work its way through the system um, had certainly given Democrats and I think opponents to this anti-trans legislation more time to uh, try to reach Republicans and, and peel a couple off towards their side of the aisle just to um, kill it. You know, Senator Bennett said this this kind of legislation is is not who Montana is and um, would certainly um, you know hurt more people I think than uh, than it would help in in Fuller's eyes and so. Um, this, uh, this legislation has definitely been some of the most divisive, um, I think for lawmakers this session. Seaborn, another major thing you've been covering, uh, is this standoff between Republicans, the legislative branch and the state Supreme court, uh, ended up in what had all of the makings of a blockbuster hearing on Monday. Uh, the GOP lawmakers had subpoenaed the judges and the court administrator and the court quashed those subpoenas, but then the judges showed up anyway. Can you talk us through uh, what happened on Monday? 
Yeah, it definitely had all the makings of, I think, these um, kind of high-profile congressional hearings we've all gotten used to over the last couple of years, even if the execution uh, sort of reminded us that we were still here in a, in a citizen legislature. It was pretty bizarre hearing on Monday at the start where um, Supreme Court Administrator Beth McLaughlin had um, been subpoenaed to appear and answer questions to this uh, Republican-led committee. Democrats are, are not particularly um, going along with the um, committee's purpose quietly. They've um, sort of objected to this at every step of the process, but Republicans um, have raised concerns about judicial bias and um, email retention issues in the judicial branch. And so uh, the Supreme Court administrator on Monday did not show up. She was following a, a court order that temporarily quashed her subpoena. Although she didn't show up for this hearing, the committee chair, Greg Hertz, he's a Republican from Polson. Um, he's said during the hearing he had about 40 questions lined up for McLaughlin. And so he went through uh, not every single one of those, but certainly enough to sort of give uh, the rest of the committee and I think the public an idea of kind of the things he wanted to know. That was a pretty stark difference from uh, the afternoon hearing with this committee where um, I had heard just before the hearing that uh, maybe two or three of these Supreme Court justices were going to appear the committee last week had also issued subpoenas for all seven Supreme Court justices to appear and uh, turn over any communications regarding pending legislation. This is sort of uh, the latest turn in, um, you know, an issue we've been talking about for several weeks now on this podcast. And so um, with the understanding that they might not show up at all because they had quashed their own subpoenas, it was already a kind of a big deal to have three coming in. Um, when that committee got started at 3 p.m., I think – uh, myself and certainly um, other people, if not the committee, were pretty shocked to see all seven Supreme Court justices um, appear to to answer questions, not to turn over the communications that were requested in the subpoenas, but to um, seemed like they were there to try to temper uh, some of the um, frustration and outrage by Republicans that's just kind of been spinning up uh, the last couple of weeks. So, Seaborn, the judges did respond to questions, uh, but not everything. Uh, here's Justice Ingrid Gustafson on the reasoning there. The purpose and the scope of legislative subpoenas is at issue before this court in other pending litigation. And it would be uh, inappropriate and I believe a violation of my oath of office for me to comment further on matters that are uh, before the court, similar to Justice uh, Baker and Justice Rice as well. How did that change the tone of the hearing, Seaborn? You know, it kind of uh, led things into this uh, brick wall for lawmakers where, you know, they want to know um, the information that they, they set these subpoenas out for. But uh, with justices saying, like, the very ability and scope of these subpoenas um, still being a matter that's being litigated in front of their court, they can't talk about these things. And so um, sort of in a, uh, you know, almost mirror version of what we saw in the morning committee where uh, we've got Greg Hertz, who's asking questions to an empty chair and uh, in the afternoon hearing where the justices are there, but uh, Greg Hertz is sort of asking questions uh, to justices who won't respond to them. And so, um, 
obviously the the biggest, if you've uh, been reading along with our coverage, um, Mike McGrath, the chief justice of Supreme Court, um, he had the most questions to answer from Greg Hertz. And uh, from there, it, it's we sort of had some more answers kind of break out as McGrath is um, supervisor to the Supreme Court administrator. He also provides guidance to um, a lot of the district court judges. We saw that last year when COVID hit. Um, McGrath was sort of the one issuing um, guidance on how to continue to operate through the pandemic. And so um, with that, um, Hertz was able to pry a few more questions out of McGrath than the others. Yeah, uh, this back and forth between Chief Justice Mike McGrath and Committee Chair Greg Hertz, uh, the Polson Republican senator, sums up a lot of what happened Monday, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and we're not disputing that you do have a certain amount of oversight. Uh, and I hope you're not disputing that we have a certain amount of responsibilities and oversight under the Constitution as well. Uh, and we respect your ability to issue a subpoena, and here we are. Yeah, and, and I respect your oversight on the legislative branch also. I just want to make sure that when we get into an oversight situation that the game is fair to to all parties and that's where I'm struggling right now is to you have a employee who seems to file a, a, a motion or lawsuit whatever legal term you might use in the Supreme Court to maybe protect some judges that she works with so where where do we find an impartial tribunal to resolve this dispute? So, Seaborn, after all this, uh, what's next for people to be watching as this unfolds? So on Thursday, that committee is going to meet again and start drafting a report to present to the um, legislature as a whole. You know, if, uh, if any questions weren't answered during the committee hearing on Monday... Hertz told the committee that that should be a further sign that Republicans should be uh, concerned and that they took that committee hearing, although questions weren't answered uh, through most of it, um, as a big win for the Republicans' investigation. And so uh, come Thursday, I think what we can expect is to see something come together that addresses uh, Republicans' concerns, or at least talks about Republicans' concerns in judicial bias, um, email retention by the Supreme Court administrator, uh, and I think use of uh, state resources, computers, phones, things like that um, in the justices lobbying efforts as they try to um, respond to legislation that in a way that um, doesn't really speak to the, uh, the legality or the constitutionality of those measures, but um, whether or not these judges support them uh, as a change to the way the courts work. And so I think that um, distinction was uh, sort of lost on some of the lawmakers on the committee on Monday. Uh, we'll see if that starts to um, get sussed out through the rest of the process. I think on Friday, they're supposed to have that final report um, completed. And then from there, uh, I think it's a little late in the legislature to expect lawmakers to be able to uh, bring legislation and pass it through both chambers. So um, I think what we're looking for or looking at is something uh, that'll be discussed largely over the interim um, after the session ends. 
Sam, you're also covering a lawsuit, again, from a bill passed with GOP support and signed by Republican Governor Greg Gianforte. And like Senate Bill 140 lawsuit that spurred what Seaborn's been covering, this also came less than 24 hours after Gianforte signed the bills. Uh, What are those bills and what's the lawsuit saying about them? So both of those bills were identified early on as priorities for Christy Jacobson, who's the new secretary of state. Uh, She's a Republican who was elected last November and is also listed as the sole defendant in the lawsuit. Um, So one of the bills, Senate Bill 169, it creates a requirement in the state to show photo ID in order to vote in person. Um, previously you just needed, you know, a, a document that shows your name and address that could be a, a driver's license, photo ID, or something like a utility bill, um, as long as it has your name and current address and it's some kind of official document. Um, so the, the new law basically requires that you have, um, either a, a driver's license, a state ID, uh, tribal photo ID, military ID, a concealed carry permit is acceptable, but, um, notably, college IDs are not, um, and Democrats have really seized on on that as um, what they say is a specific uh, targeting of college students who tend to vote a little bit more liberal. Um, Republicans have have argued simply that you need um, you know a photo ID for a variety of other things, um, but Democrats say that. Uh, the new requirements end up creating kind of a financial and logistical barrier to voting. Um, and then the other uh, legislation, House Bill 176, um, it, it's a lot more simple. Basically, it just ends Montana's practice of um, same-day voter registration on Election Day. Um, so with that bill signed into law, um, Montana voters will have to register um, by noon on the Monday before Election Day in order to vote. So you've covered these bills um, through the session, and they've had a lot of changes in the process, right? Yeah, um, especially so. So the uh, the law that uh, changes that ends same day registration um, that initially had set a, a registration deadline on the Friday before the election, um, and pretty early in the session, that was uh, actually tabled. In a, uh, in a House committee, um, and then it was about a week later revived and amended to move that deadline up to um, the Monday before the election as kind of a compromise. Um, the other bill has been pretty significantly amended. Um, it made it to, to that same House State Administration Committee, um, and they had amended it to add student IDs back into those sort of primary photo IDs that you don't need an additional document to prove your identity when you go to vote. Um, so when it, when it went to the house floor, um, you know, that whole list of driver's license, tribal photo ID, military ID also included student IDs. Um, but then when it got to the house, um, the speaker Wiley Galt actually, um, offered up an amendment to basically revert that back to the way it had been. Um, and he argued uh, that if you're a college student in Montana and you don't have registration or a bank statement or W-2, which would be those kind of secondary forms of ID that you can combine with a student ID, um, he said, it makes me kind of wonder why you're voting in this election anyway. Um, and one of the one of the uh, more moderate Republicans on that state committee also spoke on the floor um, and uh, argued that 
with that requirement um, for another form of identification for students that was likely going to send the uh, the bill to court. And here we are. So speaking of, can you walk us through who's filing the lawsuit and what their concerns are? Yeah, so um, so a variety of groups have expressed concerns about it, but uh, it looks like the first um, the first one to actually file a lawsuit against these bills uh, is the Montana Democratic Party. Um, they uh, they said they filed a lawsuit on Monday. It's actually um, it looks like it was received by Yellowstone County District Court on Tuesday, and um, and essentially um, they're making a case to. Um, for one, get the Secretary of State to uh, not be able to enforce those laws until um, a larger ruling is made on the constitutionality of them. Um, and and the Democrats in their lawsuit, they, they put forth a lot of the same arguments um, that had been brought by Democrats and other opponents to the bills previously in the legislature, um, notably that uh, they create barriers for Native American voters as well as students and disabled people. Um, and the elderly is another group that uh, that had been identified as, as adversely affected by these. Uh, the new voting laws and the subsequent lawsuit have generated some national attention too, right, Sam? Yeah. Um, so th- there's been kind of a nationwide movement to um, enact by Republicans across the country to to enact laws that would create stricter requirements around voting um, in the wake of the the 2020 general election, when uh, a lot of a lot of Republicans and and other activists alleged that there were voting irregularities or instances of voter fraud. Um, most, if not all, of those never really bore out. Or, or were not proven in court, um, but nonetheless, this has been a big trend, um, you know, over the last few months across the country. Um, and on Tuesday, um, on the Senate floor, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, actually discussed Montana's two new laws in a speech about restrictive voting laws across the country. Um, he called Montana's uh, new laws despicable. Um, and this comes as the Senate has began begun to debate a major overhaul of national voting laws that uh, that passed the House last month. Just to take one example from earlier this week, the Republican-led Montana state legislature passed a law that ends election day voter registration and would no longer allow student IDs to be used as a sole valid form of identification. Just think about that for a moment. What problems are the Republicans in Montana trying to solve there? Has there been a rash of 40-year-olds showing up with student IDs to commit voter fraud? No, certainly hasn't been. We all know what's going on here. Younger voters have been shown to be more democratic. So Montana Republicans have made it harder for them to vote. And then later in the day, Montana's junior senator, Steve Daines, fired back in his own speech. Um, and he said that uh, Montana Democrats are, or that national Democrats are effectively attempting to subvert the will of voters um, as they send lawyers into Montana. Now today, Chuck Schumer is sending his lawyers to swarm Montana courtrooms, and he is taken to the Senate floor with more distortion. This time... It's about Montana's new voting laws. I have a message for Leader Schumer and the Democrats who are trying to distort the facts and the will of Montana voters. Please get your facts straight.
So Dane's notes the Democrats had uh, last year successfully petitioned state courts to toss a law preventing ballot collection in Montana. Um, and he notes the voters had passed the law in 2018, 63 to 37%. So there's almost a two to one margin. Um, and he also makes the argument um, that nationwide polls have shown significant support for laws requiring voter ID um, in order to vote in recent years. And um, back in 2016, um, Gallup did have a poll that found 80% support overall for photo ID requirements to vote. Um, and it was notable that uh, 63% of Democrats um, were included in, in supporting that in the poll. Um, one thing that Danes didn't mention, though, was that um, Montana voters have also weighed in on Election Day voter registration. Um, and that was something that they supported uh, by a nearly 15 point margin in a statewide referendum back in 2014. Thanks, Sam. Uh, that'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, we're in what is expected to be the last two weeks of the session. And soon lawmakers will be fine-tuning the budget and zeroing in on marijuana leg, the, the marijuana leg legalization proposal. Um, check back here next week to see where things stand. Um, and as always, if you want to keep hearing this, make sure to subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys.